Um, so the readings from Thessalonians chapter uh, <laughs> two. Yeah, thank you. Um, verses one to twelve. Paul's ministry in Thessalonica. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Please take a seat. Let's pray as you're, as you're, as you're sitting. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, I, I know I, I say this quite a lot in church. I hope that the people don't get fed up with it. I don't get fed up with saying it. I praise you that we will see you, Jesus, face to face, that that is our hope as followers of yours because of all that you have done, that we will stand with you in glory. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. I've just got one other notice before I um, kick us off in our next part of 1 Thessalonians, and that is that um, uh, we said some time ago we were going to give ourselves a, a regular challenge as part of Passion for Life, um, hopefully, if you weren't with us on Thursday night and you haven't uh, seen the video yet from Thursday night, you're going to take a look at it. It was uh, greatly challenging for me, really encouraging as well. They're a lovely mixture, these Passion for Life training sessions of encouragement and challenge. Um, and off the back of that, our challenge for this week, which is hopefully up on screen, is for us to arrange to go to a meetup with a friend or a family member, find out how they are, and with God's help, and this is from Thursday night, if you haven't watched the video, you need to watch it for it to make sense, cross the pain line. Um, do the difficult thing of saying something to them about your faith, whether it's talking about the fact you're in church today, um, mentioning Jesus and what a help he is to you in difficult times, whatever it might be, looking for opportunity to do that and to try and arrange that even this week. Um, this isn't a legalistic thing. We're not checking up to see whether you've done it or not. We're not, not going to tell you off. Um, I'm not going to beat myself up if I fail to do it this week, but I'm going to take that challenge and try and do something with it. I think the Lord is really using this passion for life. He is in my life. I hope he is in yours as well, to just stir us up to be delighted to share the gospel. So that's this week's challenge. Have a think and a pray about that one. And, okay, to 1 Thessalonians, back to the book that we're working through in the coming weeks. Uh, in recent years, there have been plenty of examples. I won't mention names. Um, I'm not sure it's helpful or necessary for me to do so, but there have been plenty of examples of Christian leaders who have publicly 
been shown to lack integrity. You've probably got certain faces, certain names spring into mind right now. They might be big names from the States or names in this country, from churches or from Christian ministries. But I'm sure that most of you can think of somebody and can picture that face and can think of that name. They've fallen in some way. They have done some disservice to the gospel. They've, they've managed to show a lack of integrity, a massive lack of integrity in some cases. And the fallout when that happens is severe. When Christian leaders fall, people get wounded. As a result, people have wandered. Sometimes they've wandered away, apparently, from the faith for good. Their faith has been fractured by the sin and the hypocrisy of the leaders concerned. Now, of course, we could say, and we'd be right, that the fact that a leader has failed massively doesn't mean the message... The gospel, the good news, is any less good or any less wonderful. However much a Christian leader might fail, the gospel is always good news. But the fact is that the messenger's failure to embody that message, and when a a Christian leader publicly falls, that is massively harmful for Christians, for people in the church. And this is something that Paul knew which is why we have this section that was read to us by Hannah this morning. Because whether it was in response to specific criticisms that the Thessalonians were hearing, maybe from the Jews who'd been stirring up trouble in Thessalonica, or maybe just because Paul is anticipating what their thoughts might be now that he's had to leave them and he's writing from Corinth, whatever the reason, Paul knows that he needs to show for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the good news about Jesus, that he is not like one of these charlatan, wandering philosophers that the Thessalonians were used to. Um, in, in that part of the world, the, the Ignatian Way, you may, may remember me mentioning that when I did the introduction to Thessalonians, which basically linked so many places in the empire with Rome, many people would arrive in these cities and you'd often get these traveling philosophers who would uh, peddle their wares, who would gather a big crowd who using great rhetoric would get people very excited about their message and then sometimes as quickly as they'd arrived and caused a stir they'd leave often leaving behind them damage sometimes they were just after money sometimes they got into sexual dalliances all sorts of things happened with many of these charlatan philosophers and Paul is aware that probably what's going through the mind of some of these Thessalonians is Is Paul actually just really like one of them? Because when things got hot, he left. He came in, he preached this amazing message. It's changed my life and now he's gone. Is he like one of them? Well, Paul had left, yes. But when you read Acts 17, it's very obvious he left for the sake of the church. And he wanted them to understand in this part of his letter that his past ministry and his present absence were of God and were not down to him being flaky. So they had no reason to doubt the gospel that he'd been proclaiming and so have their faith undermined. Hence this defense in this part of the letter. As we move out of the greeting part of the letter into the start of the letter proper, we've got this defense of Paul's ministry. So he's not being defensive for his own sake. He's mounting a defense for the sake of the good news, the gospel that he's been proclaiming. The question for us, of course, this morning is what we are to make of a passage like this. Uh, this is a little bit like the problem we have as Christians sometimes when we come to the Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. You know, we read these glorious things that the Holy Spirit did in the early church, and we're sometimes left scratching heads and wondering, yeah, but what do I actually do with this? Because just as in the Acts of the Apostles, in this section of this letter, there aren't actually any commands, are there? 
Paul doesn't tell them or us to do anything. He's just describing his ministry. So what do we make of it? Well, one approach to passages like this and to Acts is to say they are merely descriptive. There aren't any commands. There are no imperatives. So this is just of historical interest and we shouldn't press it any further than that. I don't know about you, but I, I, I struggle with that when I'm not sure why the Lord would put this in his word if it was merely to satisfy our interest. Another option is to go right to the other end and say, no, it's all prescriptive. Everything you see in a passage like this is stuff that we are meant to do and emulate as Christians. But, you know, we're probably not all meant to copy the Apostle Paul in every respect. When church leaders, for example, start copying apostles in every respect, I think that's when you start getting into trouble. Um, He is an apostle in a particular situation, and we need to bear that in mind and read it in context. More likely, I think... Like in much of Acts, we're meant to take a passage like this as strongly suggestive. So it's not just descriptive, it's not prescriptive, it's strongly suggestive of what a life motivated by the gospel and a gospel ministry looks like. So this isn't just for apostles. This is for all Thessalonians and all Cardiffians and wherever else you're from. And I think you should also note, when you look in the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, verses 6 and 7, Paul is very clear that he expects himself to be an example to the Thessalonians, just as he knows that they are an example to others. So he's an example to them. That's clear. And so when we read what his gospel ministry looked like, we should sit up and listen attentively. You know, when you're, for those of you who are in school, and my dim memories of being in school, when a teacher went up to the front and did an example on the board or came up to your desk and started showing you how something was done, if you didn't want to get in trouble anyway, you didn't just say, oh, that's nice, miss, thanks, and just sit back and ignore it. They were doing it so you copied it. And I think that's what we're seeing, with, clearly from some of the chuckles, some of you did that in school, by the way. Um, that's what we're meant to do with Paul's description of his ministry here. We're meant to see it with interest, and to the degree that in context is appropriate for us, we're meant to copy it. The Christian life isn't just about whether a command covers this. We are meant to see the principles and patterns in God's word because they inform us to live our Christian lives well. Pastors and elders should probably listen up especially well to this this morning. But we are all in gospel ministry. Hasn't Passion for Life been reminding us of that? If nothing else, we're all gospel ministers in some way. So, What characteristics of Paul's gospel ministry do we see here? Well, um, we see four things about Paul's proclamation of the gospel. Firstly, Paul's proclamation of the gospel made trouble. Verses 1 to 3, it made trouble. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. He, he's, he's reminding them of the trouble that they were in and the trouble that the gospel caused. In reminding them of everything that happened when he first came to Thessalonica, he reminds us that when we share Jesus, there will be pushback, there will be backlash. We saw this on Thursday night when we, when we saw that video about expectations and crossing the pain line. We saw that our expectation should be that we will often get pushback, not just apathy, but sometimes active pushback and people rejecting us because we proclaim the truth about Jesus. We were also wonderfully reminded that we will also see people welcoming the message as the Thessalonians did, believing it and being saved. 
We need to have biblical expectations. And part of that expectation is that a balanced presentation of the gospel always gets pushed back to some degree. It's not generally welcomed by the world. Think about it. It makes sense, doesn't it? If you think about a balanced proclamation of the good news about Jesus, what is it telling people? What did it tell you when you came to hear the gospel properly for the first time and you responded to it? What it told you was, you are a sinner who deserves hell. I mean, that's, that's bad news. But you can't understand the good news of the gospel without understanding the bad news of the gospel. Everybody who hears the gospel is a sinner who deserves hell. Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to the holy God we've offended and the only way to be forgiven and the only way to become his children. There is no other way. That you can guarantee in a pagan culture, any pagan culture, but especially our culture at the moment, will get pushed back and will not be loved. Following Jesus, as we're going to see in a bit, means abandoning other gods and other idols and living by Jesus' kingdom commands and Jesus' values, which are at odds with pagan values. That's just some of what a balanced presentation of the good news says, and you can see why society doesn't like it. So when we share the gospel, we shouldn't be surprised that some will ignore it, some will get angry. There's a reason that it's called the pain line when we start to talk to people, maybe for the first time, about Jesus, about our faith. Because we're inside, we're wondering what's going to happen. But what we need to hear is that when you get resistance, when you get pushback, when you get rejection sometimes, it is not a sign of God's disfavor. It is a sign you're proclaiming the gospel. We can expect that the gospel will make trouble. Praise the Lord that we were reminded on Thursday, and we're reminded by the letter to Thessalonians that many will also welcome the message. That's the first thing we see about Paul's gospel ministry. As he proclaimed it, it made trouble. Secondly, Paul's proclamation of the gospel pleased God, verses four to six. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness we were not looking for praise from people nor from anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. We were not trying to please people, but please God, he says, about his ministry and that of Silas and Timothy to the Thessalonians. His main point here, of course, is the main point he's making in this section, that unlike the wandering philosophers, they weren't just manipulative flatterers who buttered people up to get a positive response and get their money and take advantage of them. No, no, they weren't looking to please people. They were looking to please God. That's the point he's making to defend his ministry. But the astounding truth nestled at the middle, at the center of this part of the passage is that while they may displease many people, they can, in Christ, please Almighty God. They can please the holy God. If I can say this reverently, they make God smile when they minister the gospel and share it and live for him. What we do as Christians for Christ pleases God. Now I know good evangelicals like us get nervous when people start saying stuff like that. Because what might be coming up in your mind right now is, yeah, but we can't savingly please God. Paul said to the Ephesians, by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. Absolutely right. 
We cannot savingly please God. When we put our faith in Jesus, we're saying, I cannot save myself. I'm desperate. I'm lost. I trust only Jesus in what you've done. And I relinquish any sort of good works that I might try and rely on because they cannot save me. Absolutely right. But once you've been saved, once you've been forgiven, once you're in Christ, what you do for him, our motto verse for last year showed us this, and labor in the Lord is not in vain, what you do for him pleases him. We can please God. You might be thinking, yeah, but doesn't Isaiah say our, our righteous deeds are like filthy rags? Yes, when you bring in your so-called righteous deeds to show to God, to show him why he should accept you and forgive you, they're like filthy rags. You cannot rely on them. But once you are trusting in Christ and Christ alone, what you do for the Father, because the Son has died for you so you can be adopted into his family, what you do for the Father pleases the Father. I mean, I, I assume I'm not the only one. I, I love doing things to please people I love and I'm in relationship with. I love doing that. And you, Christian, can do that for Almighty God. We were reminded by the video. The, if you haven't watched the video yet, I'm sure you're going to know because I'm, I keep mentioning it. I'm bothering you about it. It's so worth watching. We watched the Passion for Life video on Thursday night. One of the things it reminded us is that sharing the gospel is an aspect of our godliness. But sometimes like, I'm, I'm doing all right in the Christian life. I'm fighting against sin quite well. I don't do that so much anymore. I think I'm getting a, a bit more like Jesus as the months and years go on. I don't share him to people around me, of course. I mean, I, I can be godly without sharing Christ, right? No. As I grow more like him and I grow in pleasing him, I will proclaim the gospel in some way, in some small way, because that's what he's called me to do. And when I do, pleases him pleases him I mean it doesn't earn many brownie points I'm, I'm going to glory by grace and grace alone because I've trusted in Jesus doesn't tick boxes that get me a better place in heaven but it pleases my heavenly father this is a distinctive of all true gospel ministry pleasing God not pleasing people it's wonderful we can please God but the flip side to that is will you please well, pray it for yourself, but pray it especially for church leaders, you know. Pray it for us as the elders of the Bridge Church. Pray for this sort of integrity in us as the elders. Because our primary aim, don't take this the wrong way, our primary aim should not be to please you. Care for you, yes. Listen to you, yes. Please you, not always. Top of our priority list should not be meeting the cultural criteria for success either but rather knowing what pleases God and doing it. That's the second thing about Paul's proclamation of the gospel. The third thing about his proclamation of the gospel was it was delighted. It was a delighted proclamation of the gospel, verses 7 to 8. Instead, we were like young children among you, just as, nurse, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. We, we noted um, earlier in Thessalonians the, the sort of terminology that Paul uses, this, this heart language he uses to describe how much he loves the Thessalonians. He uses father-type language, as we're going to see shortly, but possibly, I, I think, definitely, the most poignant image of his love for the Thessalonians in this letter is that of a nursing mother, which he uses to show his love for them. And show why they were delighted to share, not just the good news, the gospel about Jesus, but their very lives with the Thessalonians. Can there be anything much closer, much more giving 
than a mother breastfeeding her child. Just as all good mothers and fathers delight to share their everything with their children and they don't hold back, so for Paul, he delightedly shared the gospel and shared life with the Thessalonians. The word for life there is um, literally souls. We, we shared our souls with you. There, wasn't, there weren't areas of their lives that they held back from the Thessalonians as they shared the gospel with them. This love and delight meant sharing time with the Thessalonians. It meant that Paul worked hard at his trade as a tent maker while he was there, so he didn't take money off them. And even while he was making tents, he was talking to people in the city and talking to the new Christians there. It means that he bared his soul to them. I mean, look at some of the things that Paul says to them. Um, Chapter 2, verse 17. But brothers and sisters, we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought. At our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. Paul didn't find it inappropriate as this great apostle to share with them the anguish in his heart at not being with them. Verse 19 of chapter 2. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we were glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Are you not our glory and joy? You're saying to him, you're like our spiritual kids. We love you. You're everything to us. We care what happens to you. He shared his heart with them. Chapter 3, verse 5, you see something similar. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter attempted you and our labors might have been in vain. I'm worried for you. I'm praying for you. He did all the things towards the Thessalonians that a good parent does for a child. And God used that in their lives to bring the gospel to bear fruit in their lives, to bring a response to the gospel in their lives. Paul was not content just to share gospel information, just to give them a tract, just to preach theology at them. He knew that as part of this, he had to share his very life and soul with them. Now, we've got to beware of and biblical formulae here and applying formulaic approaches to the Christian life and to spiritual things. You know, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that's decisive in bringing the gospel to take root in a person's heart. But we, we should note with more than just a little interest that Paul was determined to delight in them. The sense of this word delight is not just a delight that just, just naturally bubbles up. He was determined to delight in them. He set out to delight in them. Sometimes you have to do that with the people you love, don't you? Whether it's children, parents, family, friends. Sometimes it's easy to love them and sometimes it's not so easy. But but they're your loved ones, so you're determined to love them. This was Paul's attitude towards them. He intentionally shared his life and the deepest feelings of his soul with the Thessalonians and for the Thessalonians and his other churches too, which is one of the things that the Holy Spirit used to make his ministry so effective. God uses... A shared life. You probably know this, many of you, from your experience of coming to Christ. He uses a shared life, a real communion of souls for his gospel purposes. This makes me ask, do I get into people's lives to share the gospel with them? Am I content to keep them at arm's length and keep things cool? Do we, do we not just proclaim God's generosity in the gospel, but do we embody that generosity So often when we're generous with our lives, it can win a hearing for the good news that we believe. Having neighbours and friends over for dinner, meeting their needs, talking about life, and yes, about your weaknesses and your failings where appropriate, too, being vulnerable, praying for opportunities to do all those things. Are we delighted to share not just the facts of the gospel, 
but our lives as well as vehicles for proclaiming the gospel. I found that very challenging looking at that this week. That's the third thing about Paul's proclamation of the gospel. The fourth thing about his proclamation of the gospel, we see this in verses 11 to 12, is that it was urgent. He proclaimed the gospel urgently. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Urging you to live lives worthy of God. In other words, saying some things urgent. His proclamation of the gospel was urgent. Now, tell me afterwards if you think this is unfair, because maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but I think the way we often tend to think is about urgently getting people to believe in Jesus. And then the urgency of gospel proclamation ends. And the less urgent work, satisfying work, important work, but the less urgent work of discipleship then starts. Do you think we think that way sometimes? It's urgent to get people to faith and to believe in Jesus, to believe the simple gospel. And then we can chill out a bit with the urgency because now they're Christians. Yes, we can start the discipleship stuff, but that's not as urgent. One is vital, telling people they need to bow the knee to Christ. And the other, telling people to live for Christ, is that's like that's added value, but not the end of the world if it doesn't happen. But Paul doesn't make that distinction. To him, you see, everything I've just described is gospel ministry. All of it is proclaiming and applying the gospel, and it's urgent. Did you note that his proclamation in Thessalonica included encouraging, comforting, and urging? In the ESV, the words are translated slightly differently and slightly more strongly, exhorting, encouraging, and charging. Charging them to do what? To live worthy lives. Now, there, there we get another problem, I think, sometimes as good evangelicals. Worthy lives? We believe in and proclaim a big God, don't we, in this church? How can I be worthy of God? How can I live a life worthy of the almighty and holy God? What does that mean? Well, it means to live a life that reflects the beauty and the infinite worth of our coming King, Jesus. Not that we deserve him, because we never will through all eternity, but that we live lives that reflect his infinite worth. And Paul is exhorting, encouraging, and charging them, urging them to live those worthy lives, to be different to the society around them. He's talking here about what he told them in the past, remember? He's not saying, this is what I want to talk to you about now. He's saying, no, in those weeks I was in Thessalonica, I told you the gospel of Jesus, and part of that proclamation of the gospel of Christ was that I was encouraging, exhorting, and charging you to live lives worthy of God and his coming kingdom. He's talking here about what he'd already started to teach them in those early weeks. He knew that his presentation of the gospel, to use the, the terminology I got from a church historian recently, needed to be a depth presentation of the gospel that included what Jesus had done on the cross so that they could be forgiven and also included what it meant to then go on following Jesus. When he talks about living lives worthy here, he's talking about walking worthy, literally. He taught them in those early weeks what it meant to believe in Jesus and then what it meant to walk following Jesus. which talked, amongst other things, about what the cost of following Jesus was. If you turn back to Acts, 
few chapters before we read about the Thessalonians in Acts 17. Acts 14, let me read verses 21 and 22 to you. It's where Paul's in Lystra and Derbe and then returns to Antioch and Syria. And we read this. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. That's what Paul had obviously been proclaiming to the Thessalonians as well. What it means to come to Jesus and what it means to go on walking with Jesus. Running the race with endurance. Following him. Paul wasn't doing the equivalent of a few select weeks of Alpha and then ticking the box because the job was done because they professed faith in Jesus. He didn't relax once they professed faith. Once he baptized them. He knew he needed to urge them to live lives worthy of God in the face of a culture that hated their gospel, in the the face of a devil who wanted them to repent of their faith and abandon it. To come to Jesus, Paul knew, means to go on walking with Jesus, running the race in joy and in suffering, to keep walking that walk until we've entered the kingdom. Until we've entered the kingdom. Do you notice those words? Incredible words in verse 12, 1 Thessalonians 2. Encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Again, if you've got your New Testament heads on, you're probably going to be thinking, hang on, they'd already entered the kingdom, hadn't they? Don't we believe that when someone puts their faith truly in Jesus, they've come into his kingdom? They're citizens of the kingdom? Yes, we are kingdom people as Christians. We've entered the kingdom But that's not the whole story. The kingdom has come in what Christ has done already, but it is yet to come in all its fullness. And that fullness includes the day when we see him face to face and enter into the new heavens and the new earth. We haven't got that yet, have we? The kingdom in that sense is yet to come. J.I. Packer put it this way, the kingdom is present in its beginnings, though its future in its fullness. They had been called to a glorious future and as a result were now to live distinctively for Christ on their way there. Paul had started teaching them in his early weeks that between, if I can put it this way, because did you notice that at the start of 1 Thessalonians you've got the word grace? At the end of Thessalonians you've got the word grace. The sovereign saving power of God in our lives. Ultimately it's all of him. But between those brackets of sovereign grace comes a lifestyle that's different, that shows that grace really has operated in our lives. This is a proclamation of the gospel that Paul's talking about. And to cut some of this important stuff from our presentation of the gospel is to truncate it, is to flatten it, is to cheapen it. I know why we do it sometimes. Because we want to tell people the bit that says, if you trust in Jesus, your sins are forgiven and you have a glorious future. And that is gloriously true. But we don't really want to tell them the other stuff, at least not early on. You know, why upset them early on? This is why. Because you don't know what could happen to them early on. They need to know there's a cost. They need to know it's hard. They need to know that you need to walk following Jesus and keeping on trusting him to get to the kingdom. Yes, he'll keep you. But you need to follow him. You need to walk the walk. You need to run the race. That is part of gospel proclamation. And when we cut that out, we're truncating the gospel we proclaim. It, then it can become, it can become Christianity light. 
The gospel, you see, doesn't only rescue me from sin and judgment. It reshapes my life. And I need to keep hearing it. I need to keep hearing the gospel. Let me be clear that this this aspect of the proclamation of the gospel that says we need to walk worthily of Jesus, walk worthy of God and his kingdom. To walk worthy does not mean do more. If that's what you're hearing this morning, then if that's what we're hearing, we're not hearing the tone and inflection of what Paul is trying to say here. It doesn't mean do more, earn it. It means live your life in a way that reflects the infinite worthiness of your saviour and that pleases your father. Follow Jesus closely. We need to hear Paul's tone right. To hear this right doesn't lead to legalism, it leads to joy. As living our lives for Jesus gives proof to us that we belong to him and displays Jesus to the world around us. Just a quote from Jim Packer again, he puts it this way. The task of the church is to make the invisible kingdom visible through faithful Christian living. I love that. Applies so well to this passage. The task of the church is to make the invisible kingdom visible through faithful Christian living. This is the gospel. These are the things that characterize the gospel proclamation of the Apostle Paul. And of course, we're not, as we've said already, all apostles. We're not all church leaders. But we've all been entrusted with this stewardship that Paul talks about in chapter 2, verse 4. He'd been entrusted with the gospel, but actually we've all been entrusted with the gospel. Paul said to the Corinthians in his second letter to them that they were jars of clay with a treasure within. We've all been entrusted with this gospel. Is this gospel we proclaim, is this the gospel we proclaim? And is this the way we proclaim it, sharing our lives and souls with the people we speak it to? I believe, I, this, this isn't God's word speaking now, you have to pray about this and weigh this up. Well, this is the Lord, but I believe 2022 is the year that people will see our distinctiveness as the Bridge Church and, del- and our delight in sharing the good news. I believe 2022 is the year in which we will see souls saved in the sovereignty of God as he helps us to grasp these distinctives And take them to heart. I believe this is going to be a year in which opposition may well increase. But so will our delight in our Saviour and in this message. And by the Spirit's power, we, jars of clay that we are, carrying the gospel, will see lives around us transformed. Do you believe that? Let's pray.